Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Easter Vigil Lectionary. Our lovely guests this week are the Reverend Jesse Bostic, who is a Kanakamali woman serving St. John the Baptist and Malohia Lutheran Church in Wainai, Hawaii. She and her wife are foster parents currently fostering a wee one. They have a small homestead consisting of raised garden beds, a flock of hens, a hive of bees, a dog, and a cat. The delightful Canon Myra Garns, who is the Officer for Youth Ministries, serving on the presiding bishop's staff in the Department of Faith Formation. Canon Myra leads a ministry with young people grounded in the principles of social justice and rooted in the gospel. She loves traveling with family and friends and cheering on the Ohio State Buckeyes. And last but not least, the Reverend Canon Lydia Buckland, who is from Marquette, Michigan, and is the Canon to the Ordinary for Discipleship and Vitality with the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan. She is a mother who is passionate about living into our call toward reconciliation and justice. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on the podcast. I know our listeners are so grateful for you, and so am I. Let's go ahead and get started. What do you think we need to keep in mind for Easter Vigil this year? I think the first thing that comes to mind for me, um, not even comes to mind, the first thing I feel is the brokenness of the world right now um, and the fact that people are hurting so deeply. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of unknown about um, peace, about climate, about people's safety, about impending election. It just is such a shaky, shaky time. Um, that feels rich for Easter Vigil and also as a preacher, a little terrifying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks, Lydia. I I agree. I feel like um, I'm wanting baptisms. I'm wanting um, the hope of welcoming newness and, and just reconnecting to Um, those baptismal promises that we have and that we can trust with Jesus. And uh, it just feels like um, I want my people and my preacher that night to really give me, to connect those two things and to remind us um, and to think about our, you know, the covenants that we made. And so it seems like in some ways in all that brokenness, we've forgotten and I feel frustrated by that. I feel a little helpless in the midst of it in some ways, some days. Um, and so it feels like an ideal time for us now to be able to just to reset uh, mm. and to think about, you know, this Easter season in a new way where we where we all might organize ourselves and we might recommit ourselves to, uh, to, to you know, to those changes and to the promise that we know. Um, and the safety that we have with Christ, and we just and we and it feels like we have strayed so much from that. Hmm. When I first read through these uh, readings, it's just reminded like how many of them there are, and how long the Easter Vigil service is. And at first, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's too long! Like nobody has time for that." But I actually think what you both are saying is making me feel. And remember, like, sometimes those long services can be a gift because you can just, like, drop in and be there. Mm. And I think um, I have a tendency often to feel like people have more important things to do than to come to church. So to kind of rush through. Um, And yet there is so much peace that comes from sticking with these readings because each one of them is showing us some kind of, like, faithfulness of God, right? God's faithfulness through human history, um, God's faithfulness to God's people. And I think that for me is a message that I really need to hear and be reminded of, like, even though it feels like the worst thing ever or the first time that the world is this shaky, it's not. And that God has not just a plan, but like a presence in it and through it, um, and a way to turn brokenness into something more beautiful. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I 
I think maybe my first instinct is always like, make it shorter, make it more palatable. But maybe for Easter Vigil, the invitation is to like be there and really sit in and meditate in these and like marinate in these readings <laughs> um, and this yeah story of what god is has done and imagining what god might be doing now hmm. i love that jazzy and even if it feels like way too long for everyone the good news of the easter vigil story is that the tomb gets open and eventually we get to come out of that tomb even if the tomb feels like <laughs> in church for four hours. (laughs) So which of those readings is your favorite or which one do you think is like the one that you absolutely need to have? I need Noah. Uh, Mm. And, and I think right now it feels so important because of what, you know, there's been so many floods really literally in our, Mm -hmm. in our climate situation. And so it doesn't seem so far apart. And so the connection comes, you know, in, into what feels like reality of what we're facing often and the patience of which I think how it's been playing out for me. And I think about, you know, living in New York and experiencing this and you're waiting for um high tide then you're waiting for it to go down and people are stopping. Like we have to, we are literally having to stop and stay inside and stay put you know, God has said, you know, like, you know, like I'm feeling this imagery that connects the two things and says, I've given you this gift, like with this creation, I've created all of this beauty and he's, and then God has left this in our hands. And so I've just am troubled about what it is that we have not done to care for it. And so reminded, and you know, and God reminds us in the story that I'm not going to do this to you again. And it's the reminder of what we're doing to ourselves and in our communities and this changing, you know, of not protecting this beautiful gift. And um, the blessing of working with young people is that they keep centering back and saying, oh, folks like you, Myra, (laughs) have not done what you, you are not, you haven't done the things to recycle and to care and to think about fossil fuels and to think about this and all the things. And so I love their brilliance and their passion around caring for this beloved, this, this beloved creation that God has given us. And so I think that in this moment, it also just, it just centering me again and the reality that when we when we try to talk about planning and preparing for any event or traveling here or there, and what it seems like we say now is, well, the weather that well, we don't really know. I don't know what to expect, and so I'm I'm brought back to that. I'm thinking about, you know, Noah sending out the doves and wait, and we're waiting, and it's not time. And then so I just am I'm trying to be comfortable sitting in that waiting sometimes, and that four stop. And I'm not in control of what is going to happen, but I do have a responsibility and we have a responsibility around how we're going to protect what God, this beautiful gift God's given us. Um, so it's, so that's been on, that's on my heart in, in, in this, on this special service in this Easter vigil. Our former Bishop, uh, God rest his soul, talked about the flood story. He used it as a way to, um, talk about grief uh, when he lost his daughter and talked about it as like, you know, there's the moment before the flood and then the flood hits you and that's the grief just washing over you and you just want it to be over and you just feel like you're barely floating on this thing. And he's like, every once in a while, then, you know, you see, is this, is it done? And that's kind of like Noah sending out the dove and it comes back. And finally, when it comes back with the, with the branches, like, then, you know, that you can start to see the glimmer of, okay, you know, the grief never really goes away, but it gets better. And that there's always this thing on. So I could see if we're in this space where it's really difficult maybe that's one way to link to the grief or the trauma that we're all experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the story that sticks out is the um, deliverance at the Red Sea, not because of the like major action that that is, but because of the pillar of cloud and the, and the um, fire, right? That God like accompanies the people in this way. And thinking about that waiting time, that like in between, it's so easy for me to think that 
like while Noah is sending out the dove and it comes back empty beaked, empty handed, (laughs) um, that like, that's like, God is not there. And then it's suddenly when the, you know, when the olive branch comes back that then like, okay, God is there again. Mm. And I love the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire um, because it's just like when you're in it, God's with you, but also like when you're traveling in the wilderness, God's still there, right? Like Mm. when you're going through this like miraculous time and the sea is opening up and it's like all super duper amazing, like that's an easier time for me to feel God, right? When I step out into creation and I like notice there's a rainbow, I'm on a hike, like, right? All of these kind of beautiful moments, but also like God's goodness of creation is still there when I'm driving my car and like there's a tree on the side of the road, same goodness, right? But like I have a different perception of it or a perception of God's presence in it. Um, And so I think for me, like, that message of presence and faithfulness in the in-between and in the waiting, like we're not there yet. We haven't really had a deliverance from the Red Sea yet. I feel like maybe we're still in the plague time. <laughs> but, like, but like that God's faithfulness is going to go with us individually in every step of our journey and like collectively generationally in every step of our journey that it's not God sort of comes down and has major actions and then is like okay catch you on the flip side like see you next time you really need me right but that God is like I'm still I'm with you and like still Emmanuel and like still 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 right and I that's yeah I think sort of speaks a piece to my heart and all of the like craziness of the world and of politics and of yeah all the craziness just to have the steadiness and the uh rock that god is with us through it i have um two readings that i chose as my favorite for two different reasons the first is the creation story just because of the goodness of it all Um, Like you said, Jazzy, just like you, you see something and you know it. And I think that for me, for all ages is a great one for children and intergenerational worship. And I love um, one time we got together, like ecumenically, maybe it was all the Episcopal churches in the Des Moines area. And we divided up the stories at the beginning of the service and they were done like dramatically. And so the creation story was great with like drumming and like kids dancing around. And like, there's just so much like possibility with that story to add some like creative liturgical expression, which also breaks up the length of all of the stories. Um, And so that one for what you can do with it, um, and the familiarity of it. Then the second story that I think I need to hear this um, season is Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Um, And that for me speaks to my tendency to kind of sleepwalk through life with like my busyness, 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 and um, needing to like blow some life back into my soul, like to really show up authentically in community and to invite others in community to kind of like wake up. And it ties back to exactly what you said, Myra, around the baptismal vows to say, whoa, 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 we're not just a bunch of clattering bones and bodies. We have choices. We have free will. We have privilege and responsibility as followers of Jesus and followers of love. And we're invited together to kind of wake up and um, claim our lives and create joy and dancing. I just think about those bones, like getting up and dancing and like celebrating. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that one is kind of fun, kind of a fun one for the vigil. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, Exodus deliverance at the Red Sea, because that's the one that's like the required one for the reading. What do we as a society or as a church need to cross in order to be free? You know, I almost think the crossing we need to do is not sort of out of where we are and into a promised land, but like back into the land that we're already in and on. Like Mm. I just, so much of our 
so much of what ails us, so much of our like sickness is in disconnection from our earth. Um, you know, we're thinking that like, oh, the the earth somewhere else is better than, you know, where my house is, or like, I don't have creation care where I live. It's just happening over there. It's happening at this state park or it's ha right. Like, as opposed to being like, this is the promised place, like right here where my feet are. And I think reconnecting to the earth that we stand on, like leads us into better relationship with the people who stand here with us. <laughs> Also, um, I, so yeah, I think for me, like that story or what I see needing to happen is less like a crossing through to somewhere else or like a kind of promise of heaven or promise of somewhere else. That's this land of milk and honey and like a coming back, like a homecoming. Mm to where we already are and always have been, um, but seeing with new eyes. I'm having this feeling we need to cross from the numbness that we are in, in mm. this somewhat of a liminal space that it's more comfortable and safer, right? I mean, it's a, it's a response to trauma, right? So I get that we are not responding to all that is happening around us, right? The murder, the, the killing, the 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 bombing the the the, the multitude of uh, a grief that we're holding. Mm -hmm. um, so in ways, how do we cross just literally from a space of feeling again, mm. um, and then responding to what it is that we're seeing and feeling, and and I understand why we're why we've ended here. Um, because there's just so much coming at us, but, uh, but for how long are we going to sit in this state of pause and, and in, in action and in some ways, right. Um, and allow or witness allowing people systems to take over and take the lead for places that we know we don't want to go and that we don't believe in. And collectively as a church, I think that was hard. That was the hard part of the question for me, Shaniqua, was where as a church do we need to cross? And um, it's hard for me these days. I get stuck in that place of all the wrong things the church has done and the harmful mm. things that we've done in the name of God and in Jesus, especially as we work with our indigenous siblings here with naming the truth about boarding schools. And, um, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough to remember that that's not who Jesus was. That is never what Jesus was about. Um, and we collectively, um, as a people are about love and healing and can be those hands and feet that do that love and healing. And so, as you said, my, we're getting out of that stuckness because we get in that place of guilt and remorse and shame and, um, and then we look at our numbers and we look at our money and we look at the budgets and we're, we all know we're in this decline and um, like, we got to get across that to like, even to stop caring about any of that sense of institutionalism um, and, and rather see the collective power that we have together, um, the care that we have, the concern that we have, the compassion that we have um, to connect then even across differences beyond our denomination, beyond our church buildings, um, get like, just get out there and um, live into those promises. Hmm. I also wondered how, how might we be like the Egyptians? I think we always want to put ourselves in the role of quote unquote, the good guys. Right. And that sort of led me down this sort of rabbit hole where I was like, this story, along with the flood story, there's like this death, right? And so one of my questions, and I, I think I know the answer, but I'm also curious to hear your thought, is like, does this mean that to God, some lives are more valuable than others? Or what is, you know what I mean? Because God does kill the Egyptians, right? In the story. Or does it mean that if we oppress others or aren't in right relationship, that then we could expect vengeance? Do we have a punitive God or do we have a loving God? And um, if we are the Egyptians, what does that mean about us? I mean, I think we have a loving God. My heart tells me we have a loving God. And I 
believe and I see in scripture that God stands on the side of those who are oppressed and marginalized. Hmm. And no, God is not pleased with us when we are like the Egyptians enslaving others and like exploiting people or creation or creatures. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think, I know that in scripture, it's like there's real death, but I wonder if there's a way to read it of like metaphorical death too, that you know, that kind of baptismal water that like we Mm. die in the baptismal water. Like, I wonder Mm. what Egyptian parts of us need to die in the water of baptism, right? Like if there are ways that our sexism, our racism, our um, pride, our greed need to like die in the waters of baptism so that we can come out on the other side so that we can be closer to the people that God calls us to be. Yeah. I know in scripture, that's not exactly what happens. Like there is actual real death um, and actual real punishment. But I, I think God gives us many, many, many chances and that there are a lot of things that we are called to die to. Um, Mm not so that we can die, but so that we can live. Mm, preach. You are so good, Jazzy. Wow, that's powerful. And maybe it's not vengeance, but justice. Mm. I was thinking about, as you were talking, Jazzy, like the, in an abusive relationship with the one partner tries to leave and then the abusive partner tries to chase after them. And that's kind of a, a parallel that I thought of as I was hearing you talk and, and how they like, they need to let them go. <laughs> what is something that made you, at the end of the story, I'm always surprised by Miriam dancing. She just kind of takes out her tambourine and is like, we just had this horrible traumatic experience. And I know sometimes we do that too. Sometimes I make jokes and, you know, and we do all the time at funerals in Indian country. But like, what is something that made you want to dance recently? Well, I would say direct in my ministry is... Um, you know, as officer for youth and young adult ministry, youth ministries, excuse me. And, um, we had 60 young people offer themselves to be on the official youth presence Mm. and to be in a space to have seat and voice at the general convention. Now, you know, most may say, you know, like, Oh, you're signing up to sit through 10 days of, um, legislative hearings and, governance and polity and to be jazzed up about it, but to be jazzed up about change in the church or the possibility of that. Um, And then we gathered on Zoom. We're going to be together in person soon, but we gathered on Zoom and it was this incredible diversity of humans with multiple identities and, um, and then they responding with excitement because, you know, that's not always our normal, right? Like our our uh, home churches or our home communities or schools uh, don't always reflect that diversity that we want, right? Like all of these voices, all of these, um, our gender identities, our sexual orientation, our uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so it did make me want to dance and it gave me some hope uh, when folks will say, young people aren't coming. They don't want anything to do with that church. They're done. They're out. And um and I know that's not true. And so mm. that was interrupting some of what I fight and grapple with, you know, uh, what, you know, trying to uh, not drink the Kool-Aid of that story, but to also <laughs> reverse it, you know, I, it, you know, so even if I'm doing it, folks are like, I don't have, we don't have young people, we don't have them, but we do. And what it is that, what is it that we are offering them? And that we are allowing them to give us, teach us, train us up in a new way of how Christ is doing a thing in the world. So, so I was dancing about that. I'm still dancing. Can't wait to be with them in person. I've got a couple of things to dance about. Um, my churches are both really small. One of them um, had a really bad sewer leak. 
Um, and we had to raise like $50,000 to reline the cast iron pipes. And I was like, I don't, I actually don't know how we're going to do this. It's like triple our annual budget. Um, I'm yeah, part-time and they pay me with help of the Synod. And it was, I really didn't know what we were going to do. And, um, churches, other Lutheran churches on the island responded and were like, we heard that you had a problem and, you know, here's my $50, here's my $100, here's my $1,000. And we made our goal, which is like unbelievable in three months. And that was such a sign of like, okay, we're supposed to be here. And because I really was like, maybe it's time to like close the church. We're not that big. Maybe you know, I should just offer the sermon every week. And instead of paying a salary, you could pay for the sewer pipes to be relined. We had a couple of weeks where I had to tell people I'll preach really short because you can't use the bathroom this week. So (laughs) before you come, like it just was such a, it's been such a beautiful, such a beautiful thing to see uh, God's faithfulness and to have like that renewed conviction of like, we're supposed to be here. There's good things happening in this place. Um, my other church, uh, wants to start back up their thrift shop, which has been like a really awesome way that the spirit is moving. Um, we've been thinking about outreach and praying about it and yeah, so that's been a beautiful thing to bear witness to. Um, there's so much, there's so much goodness, I think, to dance about. Yeah, in ministry and in life. My little one, my our foster child, um, he just turned three years old. And he now will go to the bathroom by himself. Like he nice. toilet trained at two and a half. And he's really getting excited about, no, auntie, I do it myself. (laughs) Little stool to turn on the light and gets his little toilet seat, like, you know, thing that you put on there. It's so cool. I mean, it's just, he's like learning to be his own human person and take care of himself. Um, And it's, a new thing that is still completely thrilling to all of, like, I don't feel thrilled when I use the bathroom by myself (laughs) when he uses the bathroom by himself. And I'm like, yeah, all of us should find a little bit of pride. Like I can do that. I do it by myself. (laughs) Look at me go. So let's move on to the gospel. Mark usually always is so short and sweet with all of, all of his, his uh, gospel, but um, what stands out for you in this particular resurrection story? Certainly the women, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the women who are said to have been the only ones who stayed with them at his execution and the first people to find that empty tomb. Um, and, you know, I think it reminds us, it's so rare that we hear and see women in scripture and then mm-hmm. we get the glimpses. It's like, okay, they really were there or they wouldn't be there at all. Like, there's no way that these men wrote these women in unless it was like legit. <laughs> so um, I rejoice when I see the women um, and that significant role um, that they played in really the birth of Christianity when, you know, it was strongly patriarchal and they were considered second class citizens and. Um, I don't even think at the time they were considered reliable enough to testify in a trial. And like, then they're the ones who, um, you know, are told not to say anything, but clearly they did if it spreads. I think that's the other piece about Mark is like, it abruptly stops with like, and they were terrified or, and they were filled with fear. Um, And then we don't hear the rest of the story in Mark. One of the things that stands out to me in this, gospel is that the women are saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us and but they go anyway right like they've been saying to each other like what are we doing why are we going there how are we even going to get into the tomb but they still go even asking that question Mm. and I think so often in my ministry I want to know like 
Who's going to do it? When are they going to have it done by them? What's the next step? When's that going to be done by? Who's going to be in charge of step number three? Like I want it all figured out before I take the, before I like begin down that road. And so much of this, like being willing to walk towards the tomb while asking, who's going to do this for us? Like, how are we going to get in there? But like walking towards it anyway, I think that speaks such a message to me and to the church. Like so often we're going to have to walk towards things going like, we're not really sure what beloved community looks like. We haven't actually done that before. Like mm. we don't have it all figured out, but like, let's keep walking towards it and asking like, how are we going to do this exactly? And who's going to do it? Because I think in their faithfulness, like that person appeared, right? And and there's then someone who's able to roll back the stone. But if they had let that question stop them, which I do all the time, I think, mm. like mm. they there wouldn't have been any reason to rejoice. There wouldn't have been any good news. No one would have like known that Jesus was resurrected. They could have just stayed home going like, shoot, I wish I could go, but I just don't know who's going to roll away that stone for us. And I do that far too often. Just snapping for all the uh, powerful <laughs> testimony about the sisters that you both offered. Um, you know, I was, I was reading some Cole Arthur Riley and black liturgies and thinking about the silence around this, uh, day mm. um and this time and you know the the connections i hear or i'm feeling and experiencing in our own silence um and and many things that are happening in our world and, and you know perhaps that is just the the shock and not knowing what to say or do the disbelief uh that i think we are that is in this season and um uh the, the fear associated with even looking to what might happen. And so maybe that is what also I got out of this gospel story is, is do something, do something, say something. Hmm. And, and I, and in ways it's, it's what I'm experiencing now too. And I don't, I just feel overwhelmed with the choices that I have to make and that we have to make. Um, but it, it feels connected you know i i think it seems so outrageous that that all of these people who loved our jesus didn't do something mm. but we're do i feel i feel today a similar grief and a similar confusion um and so when they look back at us you know when those when the the great great grandchildren and the um the next generation look at us what are they going to say are they going to say about my silence, mm. about our silence? That word that's used there that they translate as terror and amazement is ecstasis, which is like ecstasy. So it could also be a positive, not necessarily a, a, a bad one, or I shouldn't say that terror is bad, mm. but you know what I mean? It could be translated in a positive way. Um, and sometimes maybe if you're really excited, you're also quiet. You know, you're just, if I won the lottery, I'm going to be real quiet. <laughs> Um, who is the man in the white robe? Is that an angel? I'm always curious about that. I think that's what I remember being told about who the man in the white robe was. Right. It's funny that that part of the story has never mattered so much to me. And I don't know why, because it is a curious question. And it is a question I could hear, like my children would be curious about, you know, but it's almost that godly play question of what part of the story could you take out and the story would still be the story. And maybe it's mm. that like, um, I like the presence because it means they didn't make it up. Like he's saying like, yes, it's like, don't be afraid. Like, look, look and see. Um, and yet they would have still discovered for themselves uh, that the tomb was opened. So um, he's almost a companion um, more than a main player, which I think is interesting. Hmm. What is something that you wish was resurrected or needs to be resurrected? I was listening to a podcast that 
Barbara Brown Taylor uh, recorded with Krista Tippett like a while ago as part of the On Being uh, project. And she said something about, you know, we used to live in communities and so taking in news from all over the world like floods our system and is overwhelming to us. Mm. And I, there is a part of my heart, I think, that really yearns for like the village, right? Like a real kind of knowing your neighbors, knocking on their door for a cup of sugar, like, but also not having access in some ways to like a wider world or a bigger state because the heartbreak and the joy of one community of like, 10 or 15 families is kind of enough. Mm -hmm. Um, At least for me, I find myself like so easily overstimulated and completely numb um, to so much of the heartbreak in the world because I just, I don't know what to do and I don't know what fights to be involved in. And, you know, my heart breaks for Gaza and I, I don't know what to do. Um, and so there is a part of me that I don't know if it would be healthier or better. I think we'd lose a lot by like losing access to each other also, but there is a part of my heart that really yearns for a kind of return to like a sense of boundariedness around where I am and who I am in my place. Um, that maybe has lost importance in the dawning of the World Wide Web and all of these different ways to connect, I yearn for a bit more smallness Mm. around what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to influence in my life. I I wish we could resurrect sort of the benefit of the doubt or just having, um, Mm. you know, lose the... The, we lead, I think, with mistrust now. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost this notion that you have to prove yourself to be whatever thing it is that I want, to be good, to be just, to be right. Um, and so the ability to listen in a loving way and in an open way feels like it has disappeared in our, in our culture and in our lives. And so, you know, we just do it walking around with a lot of side eye in a way with everyone. And, uh, and so I miss what would have been me taking you for who you are and just being open enough to wait to, to, to hear for you to tell your story and for me not to make up a story about you. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we don't have, we can't, we don't have to look for the living among the dead. And so like, where do we connect? It's that resurrection of connection, truly connecting with someone, not for something that I want in return from them, not because it's going to give me clout, not because, you know, there's some false affirmation, but that sense of connecting to the divine in ourselves in creation and one another, it's that simplicity um, that, connection to place, as you said, Jazzy. Um, I think we're all in our own little mini tombs. I think when I preach this service, I might ask people like, what tomb do they need to step out of? What tomb Mm. do we need to ourselves be resurrected from? I think we are because of that fear and because of that need for safety and, and shame of you know, things we've done wrong or embarrassment or ways we think people are judging us or ways we are judging someone else. Like just all of those ways that we live in that suffocating um, tomb that we're invited to breathe and invited into life um, and to be connected because we know as, you know, that's the beauty of all these stories that weave together is like, it walks us through, like God created the creation it was good like it is good we don't have to be afraid we can breathe breath into our bones the seas will part for us like this is like the 
ultimate, you know, story that if anything's going to like bring us together for some transformation and hope and inspiring, um, meaningful worship. Gosh, I hope this can do that for our church and our communities. I love that idea of what tomb do we need to step out of? Um, that's a great, great question. Who are you in the resurrection story? Who do you identify with? I want to say Mary Magdalene, um, because I want to say I'm I'm going to keep showing up for my people, right? Um, in the midst of whatever, even if there's fear associated with that, if there's a price to pay for me, um, I'm looking for you. Like I'm calling. I'm the person who's looking for my, I haven't heard from you. What's mm. going on? Where are you at? Um, and how do we figure out how to, or do I need to find other people to help seek support or that kind of thing for our, for our folk? Uh, and so I'm, I am uh, in some ways astonished by that courage, right? But um, it's, you know, she's a reminder for me that um, some of us have, you know, like as, as in this podcast, a prophetic, prophetic voice, we are called to show up in ways and to speak and to do when, when folks are not, other folks are not able or comfortable or whatever is keeping them from that. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's sometimes fear associated with that, but she makes me know that I have that. I have what she is giving and I have to keep turning back to that that kind of courage, that kind of confidence, that kind of like love for the people who are, who are yours. As I look at this story, I'm identifying with the unnamed person who rolls back the stone, mm. a poem I have taped up on my fridge at home. I think it's called famous, but the first line is like, I want to be famous like the button is to the buttonhole, right? It's about like doing what you can where you are and maybe it's God who rolls back the stone, but if it's a person like that's what I feel like I can do sort of the one thing that's like, Oh, I have the strength to do that piece. Like maybe I'm not the one to proclaim it. Maybe I'm not the one who's like, I don't know, courageous enough to leave when everyone else is in their house terrified, but like, Doing the one thing that you can do um, mm. often has a greater impact than you might realize. And this person who rolls back the stone doesn't stay to like see any of the rest of it or to like see the impact. But if that person hadn't rolled it back, then the women wouldn't have been able to get in there. Right. So I think there's something in my ministry right now, in my prayer life, which is calling me to like, be where I am and do what I can do and just look for those little ways that I can be like the button in the buttonhole, <laughs> like just little places of usefulness. But who am I in the story? I'm kind of playing with this idea of, you know, all of creation being the being, but I think I want to be like the sun when the sun had risen very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and to be like the rising sun that even after um, the unspeakable, the sun still is rising um, and beckoning, beckoning people out to new life into a new day, um, even not knowing where they're going. And so they took their spices with no way to get in, not knowing if the body would even be there, but they knew what that was the next thing they could do. It was the only thing they could do is come together and take their spices. Um, and that son said, come on, come on. It's a new day. Beautiful. That made me think of that Yolanda Adams, like the still I rise song that she sings. That's I like that song. So what tips do you have for preaching Easter Vigil this year? And I'll just mention one that I thought of while we were talking about the Old Testament piece and we were talking about how like, you know, there's a lot of grief and a lot of trauma in the world and how it moves from this sort of 
darkness or fear or you know whatever all that stuff is into this resurrection story and maybe the preaching might be asking the congregation where are you at on that continuum are we are you in the very beginning of something are you in the middle of it and you don't know if you're going to be able to get through it are you you know already feeling like you're getting through it that kind of you know and recognizing that everybody might be in a different place i'm thinking about going from darkness to light in some way in this um in a message that will um resonate from uh the dusk and the darkness into the light as you know as lydia was just so beautifully talking about the sun um i i hope that um a preacher can give us you know space to go from this darkness that we're feeling and living and experiencing into into that light and that you know that paschal candle light that's going to shine mm. for the season um and how to make some connections there right and just to, to something tangible that i need to let go of and leave in the darkness and and you know something that i want to um shine new light on or um, my light to shine for others in a different way. So uh, that's the imagery that keeps speaking to me um, in, in, a, in, a, in a way to give hope. I think there's so many readings. I wonder about rather than having like one preaching moment to do like a small sort of Lectio Divina after each of them. And just mm. ask folks, you know, what word stood out to you? And like, where are you here? Whether that's something that is a conversation between the preacher and the congregation or something just to let your folks reflect on. I think as a, as a priest, as a preacher, I far too often think that the work of the message is like mine. And it can be so much more powerful when it's a conversation held in community um, mm -hmm. And gosh, my people are so wise. They like have so much beautiful, like so, so, so many beautiful things to say that are so much better than what I could write if I were just sitting in my office trying to come up with something. And so I wonder about like allowing people to have that kind of conversation with you, with the text, with God, um, bringing that kind of interactive moment throughout the service, which otherwise, like rather than kind of getting stuck in like, okay, I got to take them all the way from the very beginning, like through the Bible, <laughs> the resurrection, <laughs> like that's a lot. Like, maybe some phenomenal preachers have that arc, but like maybe a lot of us also don't. <laughs> and so just kind of pausing after each one and letting there be a bit more speak back. I think might be really powerful. I love that. That was my first thought was trust the wisdom of the community. Um, and I really think that tying it back to the importance of our baptismal covenant, because there will be a renewal of baptismal mm. vows. Hopefully maybe there will be some people being baptized and so welcoming them into community and celebrating that. Um, but really just, you know, I've just been preaching a lot lately about what these words even mean that we say um, during our baptismal renewal of vows, but also like each week and in our prayers and how different our world could be if we really lived into them. I think about um, Berna Dozier has this quote that I've been using um, where she said, what happens on Sunday morning is not half so important as what happens on Monday morning. Mm. In fact, what happens on Sunday morning is judged by what happens on Monday morning. If the people who gather for word and sacrament go back into the world unchanged and unchanging, they have participated in empty ritual. And that just speaks to me about the possibility of um, people really taking seriously going back out into the world after the vigil um, knowing their own belovedness and gifts they have to offer. I had thought of two things there with that. And one, as you were talking, it was like thinking about, well, Jazzy, when you were talking, I was like, we could try, like, I was thinking of how would we do this with children and maybe like the Lectio Divina, they could think of words, but I was like, what if we just had a bunch of magazines and they could like, as you do the reading, they could cut out pictures or, you know, things in the magazine they liked and like make a collage, you know, and maybe 
the sermon could be like, turn to your partner and tell me where you see resurrection in this story or what does it remind, you know, I mean, something like that. I could see it being very tangible, kind of like messy church, maybe if you were, but usually it's really late at night. So maybe they wouldn't, but like, I have a lot of elders in my congregation and when they, when they want to do their, their Easter vigil, it's usually like at 5 PM or something like that. So I could see this maybe working and there's a lot of kids. I'm going to simmer on that, but I love that idea. Oh my gosh. I love the idea for messy church service, like mid midnight or some not midnight right. but <laughs> with like stations oh, of the different awesome. stories and something for each part of the story and then they kind of make their way like something hands-on like how fun oh, would that be goodness. with a different each one could be a different activity or something what a great way of doing yeah you got like you know three to five stations and and then you could all get all the readings done at once too if people are like and then they have more time to work on it like, oh my goodness not that i'm trying to rush through anything but i'm just like <laughs> yeah i mean sitting and listening to all the stories eventually we lose but we attention span that's just not you know it no matter how great the reader is it does our bodies are not used to sitting for that long anymore, listening to things being spoken at us. And what if we had, like, if it was not just, I mean, I'm sure adults would do it too, but if it was the youth who did it, what would it be like if they preached on the Sundays in Easter? Like we had a youth who came up and said, this was my picture that I cut out and this is what it means to me or where I, I could see that being really powerful and really moving for the folks in the congregation. Um, Sometimes younger kids aren't always the most boldest. Like they're not, but some are big hands and they'll be standing out there. They'll preach for 30 minutes, but some of them might not be. So you might have to get some encouragement, but I can see that going both ways. <laughs> Lydia, you had said something about the, oh, the thing about the Monday and the Sunday. And I remember somebody telling me about the Eucharist and I was like, do you believe in consubstantiation or transubstantiation? And he was like, do you believe in transformation? And I was like, what's that? And he was like, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe about those other things if you yourself have not been transformed by the action of taking the Eucharist, right? If you have not been changed, then it doesn't matter what you believe because it's not making a difference, right? Well, thank you so much for being willing to uh, share your voices and your wisdom and your stories. It's always awesome to hear from y'all. And just thank you. I'm so grateful. And I know our listeners will be too. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Jazzy, Myra, and Lydia. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you felt the stone rolled away today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now, more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash goodfridayoffering or text GFO to 91999. Good Friday Offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.